Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. Grab a Bible, take it out. Turn it to the book of Philippians. That's where we're at this morning in chapter 2. While those kids are heading out, let me catch us up on a few things. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. It's in the, the text is in your order. And then if you don't own one, we have some in the back we'd love to give you. Uh, any way you can get in front of you, though, that would be good. Uh, the, the concept, what we're about to do, what, what we're about to participate in here this morning, Christian preaching, kind of gets a bad rap in our culture. But, but here's how the Bible understands the practice, right? Preaching is a way of opening and applying God's Word um, to... To, uh, to both disrupt us from the status quo, like disrupt us from those things that we constantly kind of, you know, all of us to some extent, uh, as we go through life, like fall back into the same old, same old. Preaching is meant to kind of disrupt us from that and then to entice us to the life that we were made, made for through life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which means that preaching that doesn't make the work of Jesus central, you know, preaching that is kind of focused more on uh, chicken soup for the soul or... or neat little stories, something they read in Reader's Digest that week, uh, something that doesn't keep the work of Jesus central is not Christian. And a talk that simply supports the status quo, whether that's from the Bible or not, is not preaching. So that's what we're about to take part in here uh, this morning, something that both disrupts us and entices us. And, and we've, been, we've been doing that over the last several weeks by ordering our corporate lives, our lives as a church, around the, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, um, both on Sunday morning and in our small groups. And, and we've been doing that to see what our community would look like if, if it were formed by the gospel. And this week we look, um, we, we look specifically at, um, at, at how the lives shaped by the gospel would look. And we do that with two Example. So if you have your place in Philippians chapter 2, if you'd stand, that's our practice here, in honor of God's word, we're going to be reading verses 19 through 30. This is God's word for us. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, for, uh, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who genuinely has concern for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him, the Lord, with all joy and honor, such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete 
what was lacking in your service to me. God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, as we come into this time filled with uh, weeks that are probably a little crazy from our own personal lives to just stories in the news of uh, things that we thought wouldn't take place here in this country, political processes gone violent and disorder and uh, anger. We need the Prince of Peace now more than ever. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would come and speak peace to our souls. Uh, Not a false peace that kind of glosses over who we are, but the true peace of God that lays bare who we are and then applies the perfect work of Jesus to that. That's what we need this morning. That's what I need. That's what my friends need. And so we ask that you would do this for us for the sake of your great name because we'll give you praise as you do it. And also for our sake that we might um, live freely as children of God. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Have a seat. You guys ever read a book or an article that's meant to teach you how to do something? You know, the whole like, step one, do this, step two, do that. Now, of course, we have YouTube videos, so we don't need books to teach us how to do anything. But even still, the process is the same. As we, as we look to do this, two things always come up from this. The first is that it can get confusing, right? Because sometimes those steps don't quite go with what we're trying to do. Or, or the steps aren't altogether clear. Uh, the second, though, is that it can seem unreachable. It can seem completely unreachable. Like, that's fine for that person. They, they know how to do this. They're a, a master. What do I have? I have nothing. So what makes it better whenever we read something like that, we... we uh, Especially as I, as I think of like uh, my favorite task after the holidays is putting together all of the many things that come you know, in gift wrapping and then you have to put everything together and you're reading directions that are read to you or that are written um, in someone's second or third language trying to figure out how to do it. What makes it easier is when there are pictures, right? Examples. Here's what I mean type of section. Here's the picture to lay it out. This is what Paul is about to give us here in this passage. In chapter 2, he's laid out for us what living the Christian life will mean. What will a a life shaped by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? And now he gives us some examples of what that might look like. So we're going to look at this in two ways this morning. We're going to look at lives shaped, and then we're going to look at shaping lives. Okay, Lives shaped, shaping lives. Uh, That outline is there in your bulletin if you need it. But let's start by looking at these examples. But before we do, we need to remind ourselves what's going on, right? Because um, anytime you want to understand the Bible... uh, any piece of literature, but especially the Bible, uh, we have to remember that these verses that we're reading here, 19 through 30, are not given to us in abstraction. In fact, the verse numbers themselves, the chapter numbers, were all added in much later. It's not like Paul was writing and he thought, here's a good place to put number 19. And then he kept writing after that. Paul, Paul wasn't doing that. Um, somebody came along later thought, I, I need a, a good handy way to, to keep these reference points. So let's, let's add in these chapter and verse numbers. But this is a letter. Paul is writing a letter, and so it needs to be read in context. What happens if we don't read it in context? We end up making these verses mean something they don't, which is not helpful to any of us. Okay? So Paul says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered of news of you. So what's going on? Well, we're told in, in Acts chapter 16, let's back the truck up way further. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and this guy named Timothy 
um, who, you, you remember Paul, right? He's, he's this dude who was converted to Christianity after being a violent persecutor of it. Like, he, he hated Christians, but he ended up becoming this great uh, Christian missionary. So, uh, he, he comes to Philippi, which is a city that's now in Greece, and he came to Philippi to, to make disciples of Jesus and to start churches. That's why he came which is basically the mission of like every group of Christians. That's what God calls us all to, to make disciples of Jesus and start more churches. So he comes to Philippi with this younger dude named Timothy. Uh, Timothy's basically his apprentice. And then we're told in Acts chapter 16, remember this, we, we talked about this at the beginning of this book, of three very different kinds of people who became Christians in Philippi. One was um, Lydia, right? And Lydia was a, was a wealthy religious woman. The second person was a, a, a trafficked slave girl. We don't really know much about her except her circumstances at that time. And then a third one was a rough, blue-collar, violent jailer. And so those are given as our examples, which means that the church in Philippi is probably made up of these kinds of different people. Paul stays in Philippi for some time, but he's eventually asked to leave by city officials, causes a, a stir, causes a ruckus. But Paul loves this church. But as he's writing this letter to them, he's in jail. He's doing time. He's in jail in Rome. He's under house arrest. And so when Paul says he hopes to send Timothy, he means from Rome to Philippi, from helping Paul to ministering to this church. And now the other thing we need to see in this passage is that this is not random, right? Like, as you're reading this, you, you'll, you start in chapter 2, and there's this great, like, wow, this is about Jesus, and therefore, you know, go and... and and, uh, you know, do all things without grumbling. We talked about that last week and be lights in the world. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and by the way, I hope to send Timothy to you when I get a chance, but I can't now. But Epaphroditus, he's on his way. Like, it sounds random, <clears throat> but it's not. <clears throat> the, thing, the, the thing is, all of, this, all of this that he's been talking about, all of chapter 2 up to this point is an explanation of chapter 1, verse 27. If you have your Bible, look there real quick. Because in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says this, let your manner of life... Be worthy of the gospel. Now that's super vague, right? What does that mean, to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel? So he has spent this entire chapter so far continuing that. And first he fleshed it out by looking to Jesus. That makes sense, right? Because we're Christians. So if we're Christians, it would make sense to look to Jesus first and foremost. And then, so in chapter 2, verses 4 to 11, he says, Look, if you want to know what it means to be, live like a Christian, look at Jesus. Now, here's a skinny on what he said there. He said, look, if you're a Christian, if you believe that you've been rescued from your sin uh, by, by Jesus and by him alone, if you know that you are hopeless without him but have trusted in him to rescue you, then let your life look like his. And the reason for that is that Jesus, whom Christians believe to be God, right? God the Son, second person of the Trinity, uh, that, that Jesus used all of his godness... All of his rights, all of his privileges, all of his power, not for his own benefit, but for others, so that others could flourish, which means he served in rather, rather than being served. And Paul says, that's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, let's be honest, right? Because when all of us, not just a few of us, not just one of us, when all of us here... Uh, you know, well, Jesus did this. Our response is like, yeah, but I'm no Jesus, right? It's really easy. We hear, uh, 
we, we hear like, look, uh, go do this because Jesus did this. And we go like, I'm not Jesus. Like, I can't, I can't seem to get that done. And Paul knows that, of course. If Paul leaves us, if, if all Paul does is leave us at the end of verse 11 with, and here's all the things that Jesus did, it gives us a pass because we go like, sorry, next time I'm the second person in the Trinity, I can live like that too. But I'm not, so I can't. And so, you know, never mind that, that Paul started this whole section like, with be like this because we're like, no chance. So, so Paul gives us two other examples. He started with Jesus, then he kind of fleshed out what that's going to look like. And now he says, oh, and by the way, I've got, I've got a couple other examples for you. People you know a little better. You've actually seen them. The first of these is Timothy. Look down at verses 19 to 24. There are two poignant things here that Paul says. The first is that Timothy is concerned for their welfare. Paul says, I got nobody like him. He's genuinely concerned for your welfare. For everyone else seeks their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Again, remember, Paul is fleshing out. He laid out the example of Jesus, and now he's like, Since we all go, yeah, 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 but that's Jesus. Now he goes, no, 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 really. Let me show you a couple of examples. So when when he's talking about looking out for their own interests so that Timothy doesn't do that, he looks out for Christ Jesus. That's a reference to what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 4, about Jesus. That Jesus placed the interest of others above himself. He says, look, Timothy does the same thing. Timothy's doing that. What this means is that Timothy is placing Jesus, his kingdom, his people... Uh, the interests of those things above himself. He isn't looking out for number one. With me so far? The second thing we're told is in verse 22. He says, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Now here's what that means. First, that notion of proven worth. That, though in the original, that word um, is uh, dokamos. It, it's, it speaks... In, it's used a lot in the New Testament in terms of character, but in the, in the ancient world, what it would have been primarily used for is when you take gold or silver and you heat it up really, you know, really hot. And what happens when you do that is that it begins to separate all the impurities, all the, all the things that aren't gold or silver in the, that metal begin to rise to the top and they're kind of skimmed off. And after that, after it's been through that fiery ordeal called... you know. That through that furnace, it's called dokamos. That's the exact same way that Paul is talking about Timothy. Paul is saying, he's been through it. And you know that what is underneath is good. You know that this is what he's like. Second, Paul says that Timothy has served me in the gospel. Now, we say served me in the gospel because of the uh, terrible history of this country, uh, in, in terms of that word, served. But the word is enslaved, right? It's the same term Paul uses to describe what Jesus did in chapter 2, verse 7, that Jesus took the form of a slave. So now Paul is saying Timothy has enslaved himself to the work of the gospel. So Paul is going to send along Timothy who is an example of what he's been calling them to. Don't worry, Timothy's on his way. And so Timothy is coming to minister to them in Paul's absence because Paul is in jail, right? Now here's why that matters. Timothy is a young man. Probably a very young man. He's not an out-of-reach saint 
right? Because some of us can see um, these, these folks who have been walking with Jesus a long time, and we go look to them, and you're like, yeah, well, when I've been walking with Jesus for 75 years, maybe I'll be peaceful too. But until then, I'm still a, I'm still a hot mess. Timothy is a young man. And not only is he a young man, he's, he's this dude who was raised um, at, like many of us were, right? As a, as a nun, not an N-U-N, an N-O-N-E, like as one of those, like that's on the rise in our country, those without any religious affiliation, that was Timothy. He had none. He had no religious affiliation as he grew up. He's a later convert to Christianity. He didn't grow up in Sunday school. And Paul's saying, look, this guy embodies this life by placing the interests of Jesus above his own caring for you all genuinely, and by making himself a slave to the gospel. In other words, to, he, he's simply giving himself to see Christianity spread. Okay? So that's Timothy. But he's not the only one. Because here's the thing. The way that the Philippians came to know Timothy is that he traveled with Paul, which means that he was like, he was a traveling churchy dude. He was in, he was in full-time ministry. He's basically a professional Christian. And we tend to place those folks a little higher in our minds, don't we? As someone who tends to fall into that category, that is nuts. But we tend to think, like, look, he's a preacher, or he's a missionary, he's that kind of guy. I can't do that. Like, I can't do that. So Paul says, okay, you're right. Maybe maybe Timothy's a little too high, so I'm going to give you your boy Epaphroditus. Because he's one of you. You know him. So here's a little more of the backstory. Paul was in need. Okay? We're not, we, we don't know exactly the nature of that need, but we can guess because Paul's in a Roman prison. And in prisons in first century Rome, the government didn't take care of you. Right? It's not like you're sitting in a prison and you had your little 8 by 8 and the, and the guard showed up daily with your rations, your meals, and your recreation, all that stuff. If you were going to be fed, if you were going to have health care, if you are going to be taken care of in any way, it's because you had friends and family who were showing up at the jail to take care of you. No one else was. And so, uh, what we're told is the Philippians hear what's going on. They hear that Paul is in prison. And they send Epaphroditus with help to Paul. But the problem is that Epaphroditus got sick on the way. Not really sure what happened. He got sick. He nearly died, Paul says. He says it right here. That he nearly died. And so Paul is sending Epaphroditus back with this letter, the letter to the Philippians. So Epaphroditus is taking this letter back to these folks. Timothy's coming later, and then hopefully Paul's going to come out when he gets out of jail. Now here's, the important thing here is how Paul talks about Epaphroditus. He says, he nearly died for the work of Christ. He nearly died. He, he laid down his life, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay? Again, Paul's making a connection to the life, that, the, the life of Jesus that he laid out in chapter 2. In particularly verse 8 here. Epaphroditus was willing to die for the work of Christ. See, when he became ill, he easily could have said, like, look, guys, I'm done. Check, please. I'm heading back home. I'm sick. Like, I almost died. I, I am not going any further. But instead, he continued on the journey because his, his well-being wasn't as important to him as the work of Christ. Because, see, it's one thing to say churchy missionary dude's life reflects what Paul's talking about. Again, we all kind of think, okay, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. But it's a whole other thing to say one of your buddy's lives does the same. 
Look, I don't, I don't know exactly what was going on in the church in Philippi, but I do know people. We look out for us, right? I mean, we like to say that we serve and that we, we, are, we're, we want to live for others, but we look out for us. And Paul is saying, that is not what we were called to as Christians. And then he's pointing to these two guys and he's saying, look at them. They're not perfect. And look, maybe even if they didn't have enough time to really get to know Timothy's uh, foibles, Timothy's kind of uh, peccadillos, they certainly know Epaphroditus's because he was one of them. He's saying, you, you know their issues, but they embody what I'm talking about. Live like this, not like a consumer, because this is what you were saved for. Okay? So that's our passage, but what do we do with that? Again, it's one thing to say our lives should look like that. It's a whole nother uh, to, to, to look at these examples and then, and, and then try and figure out what to do with them. Because if we just say do better, we hit a malfunction. Right? If, you, if you've been at Holy Cross, you know that saying do better, just go do better. That's not Christianity. Do better isn't Christian. It's moralism, certainly. Religion, maybe, but it's certainly not Christian. And so the first thing that I want to look at as we look at this passage, kind of take it apart, try and apply it a little bit, is examining our interests. Because Paul says of Timothy, again, look, he says of Timothy that he doesn't look out for his own interests, but Christ. So let me ask us this. What are the interests that we look to instead of Jesus? What are the interests that you put before Jesus? It's an important question. And it's one that we need to get straight. And not only that, but it's a question that everyone in this room needs to wrestle with, whether you're a Christian or not. Not everyone here is a Christian. That's okay. But everyone needs to wrestle with this because it gets at the question of ultimate concern. What have we made ultimate in our lives? What is there in that place that we must have or else life is meaningless? What do we look to and say, if I don't have that, life is not worth living? My guess is for some of us, maybe it's reputation, that you have to to be well thought of. And so you work tirelessly to be seen as good. Maybe it's money. And so you labor to make your life secure and safe through money. As long as your, your 401k is in shape, as long as your investments are in place, as long as your savings account's a certain amount, or, or, or you're able to spend your money on what you want, then you know you're okay. Maybe it's success. So you run yourself and you run your family into the ground to get on top. Maybe it's respect. And so you hide those parts of you that aren't so pretty so that other people will always think well of you. Or if somebody disrespects you, you just knock them out. Maybe it's pleasure or affection or relationships. And you say, if I don't have these, life isn't worth living. What are your interests that you place before Jesus? The problem is that for some of us, that question isn't easily answered because we... we it's hard for us to see that we place those interests above Jesus because we're using Jesus to get those things. Do you know what I mean? Like, we, we think, oh, I need to have a good reputation be good, so I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to trust in Jesus and follow what he says, and he'll make me good. He'll make, give me a good reputation amongst other people. 
We follow Jesus so that we can get one of these things. If I, if I follow Jesus, I can get success. If I follow Jesus, I can get a spouse. If I follow Jesus, I get the ability to do what I want and be forgiven of it after I'm done. What are the interests? Listen to me. Here's, here's the main question. What are the interests that if Jesus were standing at that door right there with it open and said, to be with me, you've got to leave that stuff behind and go through that door. What are the interests that you would look at him and go, no. What if he said to follow me will mean leaving behind the possibility of a spouse or kids or freedom or riches or a spotless reputation? Would you say no? I ask this because this shows that no matter what you may try to believe, no matter how much Jesus talk you've got, no matter how many theology books you've memorized or, or how many uh, gold stars in your Sunday school record you have, you're following those interests, not Jesus. You see the kicker in that, right? The kicker in all of that is that none of those things are bad. It's not bad to have a good reputation. It's not bad to be in you know, a, a romantic relationship. It's not bad to have money. None of those things are bad. If they were, it would be easy to say this is not right. But they're not bad. They're good. They just can't be God. And so that leads us to examining our motive. Because just knowing those interests doesn't do anything. Like, we can see that and go, yeah, yeah, that's true. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go through that door. But it doesn't really tell us much. All it does is expose us. Some of you might be feeling that right now. You're feeling exposed. You want to make for the exit. You want to make for the other door. Not that one. You're going that one. Uh, stick with me for a minute. Because I can tell you this. There's nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. Okay? We're in this together. So why do we have these interests? Why do we have these interests? Why is it so hard for us to go, no, I, but I can't, Rick, I cannot imagine a life in which there wasn't a potential to, be, to wake up every day and have someone tell me that they love me. Don't take that from me. Don't take away my reputation. I don't have anything left. Why is it so hard for us to imagine a life not like that? It's because, friends, that you and I were made to worship. And I know as soon as I say that, you're like, oh, churchy stuff. Like, I know it's a churchy word. It's a churchy word, but it's not a churchy idea. To worship something, uh, literally, as the kind of looking at the word itself means to ascribe something ultimate worth. To ascribe it worth in our lives. It means what we think is most important to us. And so because it's most important to us, to get it, we serve it with all we have. It becomes the center of our identity. It's what makes us. It's what makes life worth it. Let me give you an example. Some of you, um, maybe you follow uh, sports to some extent or just in the news because she's been everywhere up until recently. Her name is Ronda Rousey. Uh, she's uh, MMA fighters. Like, the, up until recently, the, the undefeated and clearly undefeated by a mile women's champion of mixed martial arts. Until recently when she got her stuff handed to her royally. It was ugly. And, and if you, if, unless your stomach is turned by stuff like that, you just Google her name and Holly Holm and you will see it. It is ugly. And so she had made her reputation as being this larger-than-life figure based on the fact that she was the baddest woman on the planet. And she would call herself that until she wasn't. 
she lost to Holly Holm badly. In a recent interview, she said that as she was sitting in the training room after having someone run those smelling salts or ammonia pellets or whatever it is to try and get her head ungroggy from getting it just beaten in, she thought to herself this, what am I if I'm not this? What am I if I'm not this? She said she contemplated suicide in that moment because what am I if I'm not this? That's what I'm talking about. We were made to ascribe that kind of worth, to reserve that place in our hearts for God. We were made for him, but ever since sin entered the world, we worship anything but him. We place everything in that spot in our hearts, that spot that will give us worth, that will form our identity, that will make us right, that spot where we say, this is what will save me. Paul, the same guy who wrote this letter, says in another letter that what we do is we exchange the creator for created things. In other words, we take good things that God created, called them good, and then we make them God. We look to respect and power and money and sex and relationships and reputation to give us something they were never meant to. And friends, that is why you can't get enough. See, we fool ourselves into thinking, no, no, the reason that I can't get enough, I just haven't gotten the right relationship. I haven't gotten the right amount of sex, the right amount of money, enough reputation, enough uh, approval, enough affection, right? Or I just haven't gotten it from the right person. But this is why you can't get enough. Look, if you're here this morning looking to those things and, and you are believing that you just need a little more, a different relationship, this particular person to respect you, one more hit, one more sexual escapade, one more person to love you, you are believing a lie. It will never be enough because those things were never meant to fill that place. Only God was. So Jesus came to reconcile us with God, to live for us, to die, to pay the penalty for every bit of false worship that we've ever performed and to bring us back to the God we were made for. All those things that you serve tirelessly, that you work and work for, and they never come through. Can I tell you this? Jesus is the only Lord that you have failed utterly, but who loves you completely. You come to him, and you don't have to work, because he's done the work for you. You don't do what he says to get to God. He gets you to God. You don't do what he says to get satisfaction. He is your satisfaction. And so come to Christ. And when we, when we do, our identity can be shaped just like these guys that Paul talks about. How is it that Timothy could lay aside all of his interests for those of Christ? Because here it is, here it is, here it is, okay? If you place relationship and affection in that place of worship, if you need it to live, if you say to yourself, who am I if I'm not this? What you are really longing for is to be fully known and totally loved. Something that no human, and some of y'all have great marriages, your spouse cannot be that for you. Can I tell you, if you're placing that weight on their shoulders, it will crush them. They cannot be that for you. 
No human can. Because it is alienation from God, not romance, that you long for. Like you long to have that alienation healed. If you long for power, it is the hope of safety and security which you are striving for. And no amount of money or power or ability can save you from death. Only Jesus can. You see, when you unmask those things and you run to Jesus, you can lay them down. They're good, but they can't be God. But if you don't, if you don't, you will always be enslaved to them. Never able to leave them behind. Because what are you if you're not that? Don't make me give that up, Rick. It's all I've got. One last thing. Because some of us in this room are like, Rick, I got that. Yeah, I know, I struggle a little bit, but I'm a Christian. <laughs> and, and you see, what we, what we mean when we say that is we, we fool ourselves into thinking we can have both, don't we? I can worship Jesus in sex. I can worship Jesus in relationships, no problem. I, I, can, I can worship Jesus in success. Listen, I love you. I do. And I'm here to tell you that God suffers no rivals. It's why in the Bible he calls himself over and over again a jealous God. It's why over and over again in the Old Testament he describes his relationship to his people like a marriage. I want you to imagine a marriage that you say, yeah, this is a great marriage and I have my flings on the side and it's okay. No. A loving spouse suffers no rivals. And neither does the Lord. To say that you worship Jesus and anything else is to say that you don't worship Jesus at all. If you have Jesus plus anything, friends, you have nothing. But if you have Jesus plus nothing, you have everything. Don't be deceived. You can't have it both ways. If you think you can, you're only fooling yourself. Because the Lord Jesus, unlike all of those things, is the only Lord who knows you fully and loves you completely. He is the only Lord who, when you failed him utterly, still loves you totally. He is the only one who actually lays down his life for your failures, for my failures, instead of asking you to make it up. As one preacher in the Old Testament said, guy by the name of Isaiah, he said, don't spend your money on what doesn't satisfy. But instead, come and buy without money. Without money. Buy at Jesus' expense what alone can satisfy you. And then, friends, let your life take the shape that we were made for. Would you pray with me? Lord, at the end of this, what we talked about this morning is idolatry. It is said over and over and over again in your word that it is a problem of your people. Lord, some of us here in this room, we can't even see the idols we worship. And so, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to them. Some of us have have made a definitive break with them. We've said, I worship Jesus and I am am his, and yet we keep wandering. Our hearts keep wandering back, and sometimes we can't even see that. And so I pray that you would expose those things and give us the gift of repentance. And Lord, as we do that, as we 
are able to lay aside those interests, I pray that you would give us the grace to take the shape of the lives that we've seen in this passage. To have genuine concern for others. To be able to lay aside our interests for the sake of those of Christ. And Lord, give us Give us the grace to live into the fact that in Christ we are known fully and loved completely. Whether we are doing that for the first time here this morning or whether we are doing that for the first time in the last 10 minutes, we need you. We need the gospel. Press it into our hearts, we ask in Christ's name.